Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the Book of Philemon. There are times in our lives where relationships break apart, whether that be because of wrongs done, words said, or simply through circumstance. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is the power it has to reconcile and redeem the broken relationships in our lives. This reality comes into clear view in the little book of Philemon. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Well, good morning. Please remain standing, grab your Bibles, open them with me to the book of... This is the mystery, Philemon. Philemon. You go to Hebrews, turn left. Hebrews, find Hebrews, it's a bigger book. Turn left, New Testament, Hebrews, turn left. You'll find Philemon right there. I felt like I owe you a one-day study <laughs> out of a two-year study in the gospel of two and a half years. Some of you will correct me. Not two, it was two and a half. Pastor, we did it for two and a half years, and I enjoyed every bit of it. Uh, but I thought like, well, today we're going to make it up to you. So when we're done today, we will have done two books in two and a half years, uh, Lord willing. <laughs> Let's go ahead and read this chapter together. Some of you, I'm sure, have never heard a study in this particular book. So I hope and pray that today it would make a, a, a real blessing, give you a blessing uh, that you can hold on to. But Paul says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, his, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for the sake, love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to, to, to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but out of your own free will. For perhaps he was for a reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you, you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. 
I will repay it, not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you, as do Marcus, Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You may be seated. As we said, it was a couple of weeks ago. Last week we were out. We weren't feeling well that day, but a couple of weeks ago we did conclude our study in the Gospel of Luke, uh, ending right there with the blessings of Christ's ascension. But we know that after Christ finished his work here on earth and he ascended up to the highest place at the right hand of the Father, that he would go on to continue his ministry here on earth through the Holy Spirit. About six years ago, I think it was, we went through the book of Acts, Luke's other narrative in which he tells us the continuation of the story of what did occur as the Holy Spirit did come down and the apostles were filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit and they went out as they were commanded and they carried the gospel message throughout the known world, the Roman world. But what was so unique about this message going out, by the time it goes out, it is very clear to everyone that the message of the gospel is for all people. That it was for Jews, it's for Gentiles, it's for females, for males, everything without prejudice of race, tribe, tongue, class, whether you're old or you're young or you're educated or uneducated, this is a gospel that is for all. Paul rejoices in that in Galatians chapter 3. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. Isn't that kind of a cool thing to understand? We're all one. We have this bond together in Christ. It doesn't matter what your background is or what nationality you are or, or what tongue you speak. There is this oneness that we have in Christ. He says to, to the Colossians, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. When you come to Romans 1.16, Paul rejoices in the power of the gospel. For him, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, meaning this is for everyone who believes it, who holds on to it. In fact, as you go through the book of Acts and you see the spreading of the gospel, by the time you get to Acts chapter 17, there you fall, find Paul in Thessalonica. There's kind of a riot that's taking place. And they come before the authorities of Thessalonica and they say of these men, these apostles, they're upsetting the world. Literally, King James says they're turning the world upside down. And the reason is, is because this whole idea about grace that we've been saved with changes everything. It really changes everything. And certainly in the Roman world at that time, this message of the gospel was transcending everything. And people from every race, tribe, and tongue were coming to faith in Jesus. You see, in the, econ in the economy of Jesus, there are just two kinds of people. 
And there will always just be two kinds. You will either have the found or you're going to have the lost. You either have the saved or you're going to have the condemned. You're going to have the redeemed or the unredeemed. The saints or the ain'ts. But there's never going to be anybody in between. There's never going to be somebody who's just kind of a Christian. You know, it's nothing, that you, I'm, I think I'm kind of one, maybe, I don't know. It's kind of like a woman can't be kind of pregnant, either you're saved or you're not saved. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, he says, he who's not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus says there's no in between. Either you're really one who's with him or you're against him. There's no, there's no mixture. But that's what happened in the gospel as it begins to move out into the Roman world. Because the message is that Jesus came to save sinners. And all anyone has to do to qualify for the saving grace of Jesus Christ is be a sinner in need of a Savior willing to repent of your sin and believe on the work of Jesus. Isn't that good news? Maybe you understand why we call it good news. Maybe you understand why you're qualified. If you're a sinner, you qualify. If you've been one, the gospel is for all. Grace changes everything. By the way, my, my pastor, Pastor Chuck, years ago wrote a book, one of my favorite books forever. I hope that some of you get to read it. Uh, we have some on stock here, I think, but it's called Why Grace Changes Everything. And I would pray that you take a hold of it because in, I know in my life, when I accepted the grace of Jesus, it changed everything in me. It's changed my relationships with others. It just changes everything. How I look at life, how I look at the future, how I look at the eternity, all those things. But here we're given this really short epistle from Paul and his letter written to Philemon. In the small letter, we're given a small glimpse into the radical nature of the gospel as it invades and collides with a world that is made up of distinctions, a world that is made up of prejudices, a world in which doesn't understand, but in the gospel will put everyone on equal footing as sinners in need of a savior. So here we come to this book of Philemon. It's unique. Uh, it's unique, not just in style, but in essence. This isn't a letter that goes into deep theology and sound doctrine as much as it is a letter that illustrates and emphasizes the effects of sound doctrine when it is lived out in the life of the believer. But it relates to the story of this wealthy slave owner by the name of Philemon and his runaway slave by the name of Onesimus, who in time, through unique circumstances, both of them come to share the same faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And it speaks of the love, the grace, the forgiveness, the reconciliation, and the common bond that ought, to be that ought to transcend all the boundaries of race, age, position, status, education. You know, and the message is this, is that in Christ we're all made one. We are now saved by a common bond with each other and all others who believe. But Philemon is really this, this epistle where the apostle Paul, he's now under guard in Rome, under house arrest. He's been chained 24 hours a day. There were different soldiers who had Paul duty. I can't only imagine what it was like for them. No, oh, I got Paul duty today. Oh, do you? I bet you they got an earful. 
Um, we hear in Philippians that there are many throughout the palace guard that became believers in Jesus by the ministry of Paul's presence there. But as we see here, though Paul is in prison during this period of time, his ministry never ceases. It illustrates one more time that God uses all the varied circumstances of our lives for his good, though are those things that are called according to his purpose. Sometimes you say, oh man, Lord, I don't like what you're doing. It's like, doesn't make sense to me. And then later you realize, I think I do see the wisdom of that God. After all, I wouldn't have been able to do this if you hadn't have brought me here. If you hadn't have done this situation, well, we find that still true with the Apostle Paul. Though he's in chains, though he, ha he has the aid of fellow workers, he does have companions who are at his side while he's in prison. You have Timothy. He'll say he has Epaphras and Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke. And thus he's now able to communicate. He communicates through letters, specific directives that he gives to individuals such as Timothy and Titus, or letters that he can communicate to, uh, to Philemon here. But the letters that Paul would write under these conditions bring rich blessings, encouragements to those who are receiving them, in which he clearly begins to let them know that though he is under guard, God is still doing his work. Now, from context, we're able to discern that he wrote this particular letter about the same time that he wrote his letter to the church at Colossae, the Colossians. So he says here, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, verse 1, and Timothy, our brother. Unlike our letters where we typically sign off at the end of the letter, you read the whole letter, you come to the end, sincerely, you know, Doug or whatever your name is. Isn't it interesting we do it that way? I think their way is better. And their way they start off with, because how many times have you read a letter and go, wait, 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 wait go see who it's from first? No, he just says, this is right from me. This is, I'm writing to you. This is letter from me. In his other's letters, he would often refer to himself as Paul, a slave or a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But interesting, in this letter, he states his position as being a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He says, I'm one held captive by Christ himself. And he doesn't mean this in a negative sense, but in the sense that his whole life now, he is willingly given over and compelled to serve the will and the purpose of God, whether he is in prison or out of prison, no matter where he is. That's a great way to live, people, no matter where you are. But Paul always recognizes the sovereign hand of God over the affairs of his life. Indeed, he was now in prison in Rome because of his relationship with Jesus. And, that's, and indeed, he is being held prisoner only because of that relationship. So he then writes to the recipient, to Philemon, our brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow worker, and to the church in your house. Though Paul would write many letters that are addressed to churches, he also, as we said, writes to individuals. Again, you have Timothy, you have Titus, and here we see Philemon. Um, here he addresses him as a beloved brother. He is a fellow worker. He mentions Aphia, who is probably his wife, and Archippus, he describes as a fellow soldier who is perhaps one of the elders there at Colossae. But as you see through the book of Acts, the early church believers met in houses. 
They met in house churches. And I want to just say this, because I always feel like when I get to this, this is an important point, that today we put far too much emphasis on the buildings. You know, we talk about the space, the design, you know, if we build it, they'll come, that kind of a thing. All we need to do is have all the cool stuff and the people will come and they'll be a part of it. But the idea of buildings being built for the sole purpose of meeting places for the church will never come about until about the third century. But in this very early church, the church is always recognized as people. It is the gathering of the people, of believers. The word ecclesia means literally called out ones. We are those who have been called out to come to gather together as the assembly of believers. What makes the church here at Calvary a church is you. This is a building without you. You know, it isn't the steeple. It is the people, they used to say. This is what the church is. That's true then, it's true now. And all over the world, we know there are these huge, grand, beautiful structures that are called churches that are empty of people. Listen, they quit being the church when the people quit being there. The early church, like many throughout the world today, they met in houses. And most likely out of necessity. Remember, by and large, Christianity at that point is viewed as a strange new Jewish sect of people who have strange beliefs that were totally contradictory to the world's ways of thinking. And I, I want you to know it should still be that way today. We think differently. Do you guys ever recognize that? We're not in tune. I don't know about you, but when I'm in the world a lot of times, I recognize I am a misfit. I don't fit. I have a different way of thinking and looking at life because of this relationship that I have with Jesus. But Paul goes on to bless them in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a typical greeting. Grace and peace, charis and irene from God our Father made possible through Jesus Christ. By the way, when you see grace and peace, it's always grace that precedes peace. Because without grace, there can be no real peace. So Paul then goes on to commend Philemon's love and faith. He says, verse 4, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may be effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the heart of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Notice here that Paul begins by just thanking God for Philemon. Philemon himself had brought him tremendous joy. He reaffirms his love for him, his admiration for him recognizing that he has been a fellow laborer for the Lord and that he has a love for all the saints, that he has a love for all of them. Now it is quite possible that Philemon himself had come to faith in Christ under the ministry of Paul himself. Some theorize that Philemon had gone to Ephesus 
During that two-year period where Paul served as a pastor there, discipling those, and it was that time that he was born again under Paul's ministry. But without knowing all the circumstances which led Philemon to Christ, we do know that he was a man of significant wealth, that he was a man who had status, he had position, at the time when his life was radically transformed, by the way, it does tell you again that it wasn't just poorer people who came to Jesus. There were some who had wealth, who did come to Jesus. But likely after he is grounded in the faith as a disciple, he would return back to his hometown in Colossae where he takes part then in the building up of a church in his own home. Again, people, the idea, the church is the people. It's the people who gather there. And so Paul, not surprisingly, finds great comfort in the reports of Philemon's ministry, seeing how he had effectively touched the lives of so many in that fellowship and his partnership with other believers. In verse 8, he says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet, for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, the elder, and now as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Before petitioning Philemon with everything that is on his heart for him, Paul assures him that he is confident that when Philemon hears the nature of his request, that he will do the right thing. But although Paul had the apostolic authority to command, to demand Philemon to do the right thing, he much rather appealed to him on the, on the basis of love, on the love that he had for the Lord as the love he had for Philemon, the love of the one whom he's writing about and his love for the whole church. Paul is motivated by love, and that issue of love he knows is always willing to take a risk. So Paul comes and he appeals to Philemon, not only as his elder, but as a prisoner a prisoner who is compelled to serve the will and desires of his master. In verse 10, he says, I, pe- I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Now here Paul gets to the heart of the issue. He is now writing on behalf of another man, known to Philemon by the name of Onesimus, whose name incidentally means profitable. And it seems that Paul uses his name as a play on words to speak about the fact in the past he has been unprofitable to you, but now he has become profitable to both you and myself. And then he refers to Onesimus, notice this, as my child, begotten in my imprisonment. Evidently, Onesimus had come to faith himself under Paul's ministry while he's in prison. Not only that, he has been discipled under Paul's tutelage, and he went on to be a tremendous help to Paul while he is in prison. Now, this is really where the plot thickens. Without knowing all the details, the best that we can put together out of the context of the letter, is that Onesimus had a past that needed to be reckoned with. He was a runaway slave who had once belonged to Philemon. 
And the text seems to indicate that Onesimus didn't just run away from Philemon, but he actually robbed him before he left. Now, to really understand the context of what's going on here, I want you to understand slavery in the Roman Empire. About that time, the population is said to have been about uh, 60 million people and population. And they said that one-third of the population of the Roman Empire were those who were considered slaves. As many as another one-third of the population were former slaves who had in time gained their freedom. Now, people became slaves for various reasons. Sometimes it was a matter of obligation, of repaying a debt. Sometimes they became slaves as legal retribution. Others willingly sold themselves as slaves just as a means for their own survival. There were some who actually impoverished parents who would even sell their own children into slavery just for their own survival. In some ways, we could liken some of this slavery to like an employee-employer relationship and the means of making a living, the master being the boss and the slave being the employee. I mean, do you ever feel that way? I mean, might, I'm sure you have. I owe, I owe, to after work I go. I've got to get this done. However, unlike that employee-employer relationship, slaves were considered the actual property of their master. They were owned without the option or the right to quit their jobs or to look for a new occupation or new employment. They did not have any of those choosings. As slaves, they had no rights as citizens. They had no protections obligated to serve their master at all times. They had no one to appeal to. Slaves could earn money and could possibly purchase their own freedom. And sometimes they were granted freedom from their service and sometimes they would purchase their freedom. And we also know that the value of slaves varied depending upon the factors like their age, their physical fitness, their conditions, their skills, their abilities. And some slaves had greater value because they had greater potential. And they would also have a greater potential of at some time earning even their own freedom. But they were valued property. They literally belonged to you. They became symbols of status to their owners, much like in our day, those who are well off tend to drive nicer cars. They drive you know, the Mercedes, they drive the Lexus, and then you have those others who just drive the Volkswagens and all that kind of stuff and say, ah, I know who you are. I can tell by your car. Boy, isn't that embarrassing? <laughs> Our cars tell a whole lot about us. Some masters, they took pride. They took great care in their property. They took care of their slaves who benefited them greatly. There were other masters who abused their slaves. And they, uh, they treated them horribly and tortured their slaves. But the, at the bottom line, I want to say is this, is that a powerful owner determined the destiny of their powerless slaves. You see, slaves were always considered the lowest class. Which is interesting because Paul, as you look at his letters, always identifies himself as what? As a slave of Christ Jesus. But it's a particular word that he uses. It means it's a doulos. He is a bondservant, which means he is a willing slave. A slave who is a slave by choice. And because of that, he sees himself as the property of Jesus Christ. 
the one who had bought and paid for him, and now he lived to do the will of his master. That is the heart of being a true servant of God. God, I belong to you. You paid for me, you bought me, you redeemed me. Now my life here now, Lord, is to serve your purpose. But Paul regarded being a slave of Christ as a privilege, which provided tremendous benefits, great security, great promise, but interestingly, as you go through the Bible, while you recognize the Bible acknowledges the practice of slavery throughout all of history, it never really speaks directly against it as a practice, nor does it condone it or justify it. But it does have a lot to say of those who are the masters and those who are the slaves and how you are to approach that. It has a lot to say about justice and about treating slaves with respect and kindness. But slavery was a huge issue in the Roman world. Their whole economic system depended upon it. It wasn't just for certain races. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, were you called while a slave? Well, don't worry about it. But if you're able to do so, you know, become free, rather do that. He says, listen, if you're a slave when you get saved and that's where you are, that's okay, don't worry about it. And if, and it's, if it's possible, that you can purchase your freedom at some level, then go ahead and do that. And with so many slaves in the empire, it's important to understand that they had to keep them under control. And so they had these strict laws of severe punishments for those slaves who refused to obey, and especially for those who would run away. Some who ran away were put to death. Some, when they were caught, they were brought back to the mass, severely beaten, they were then given a branding on their forehead just as an example to let everyone know what kind of a slave he is. Back to our study. The Roman world at this time is in this economic system, this class system of greater thans and less thans. All these things, and then comes this gospel of Jesus Christ that invades the whole culture. And this gospel transcends all boundaries without prejudice, without the regard of merit, regardless of social class, status, race, age, gender, education, and even slavery. It's a message that is for all the whosoever wills. If you who will come. Onesimus, on the natural scheme to things, had much more to lose than Philemon, the slave owner, and because he was still obligated as a slave. However, by the grace of God, he had been confronted at some point with the truth about his sin. And he comes to terms with the fact that he is a sinner. And even though he's a runaway slave, he gives his life to Jesus. And then he discovers the freedom that is there now in his heart because he has given his life to Jesus. And the truth is, when he found Jesus... Grace changed everything for him. Onesimus repented of his sin and he placed his faith in Christ. He was born again. The Bible says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So he finally finds this freedom. He's now free from the yoke of sin and death. He's now free from guilt and shame, freedom from himself, freedom to be loved by God and to love others. One of the great joys that I have had over the years and being with Pastor Tim when we go down to Oregon State Prison for many years, I think 20, 
three years we've been going down to the prison and meeting with the guys up there, maximum security and guys in there, murder, all, all kinds of very vile sin. And I don't know how many times I've heard men there say, oh, thank God for bringing me here. Because it goes, here I found freedom. When I found Jesus, I really found freedom. And they understand this. And I believe that's the heart of, of, of Onesimus here. You know, Paul knew and understood that Onesimus would have to put things right with Philemon before he could ever really go on to find the kind of freedom that he needed to serve. Many years ago, I've shared this with you. My dad was a, a pastor. We lived back in New York at the time. And one particular season of ministry, that a man came to our church, a very nice man, and he started showing up Sunday after Sunday, and eventually he brought in his trumpet, and he started playing along with the organ and all. And a very, very nice guy, and then he started taking our family out to dinner every week. And for us, as a family, we were pretty poor, so we welcomed his invitation. He took us to very nice restaurants, and it was week after week after week. And then back, I think it was 1964, 65, the World's Fair in New York, he told our family, I'm going to take you and some of your relatives, oh, I'm going to take you all to the World's Fair. And we thought, wow, this is incredible. And all this time, we think, well, he's just a, a really nice, rich man. He sells pots and pans for a living and, and uh, must be doing very well, uh, we, reaping a lot of the benefit of his work. Well, time had gone by, about six or seven months had gone by, and we hadn't seen him at all. And one day, a couple plainclothes policemen came up to our house, and they informed us that our friend Kent was in jail, that he was in prison, that somewhere along the line, uh, he turned himself, and it turns out he was wanted, that he was a cat burglar who uh, had made a living out of breaking into people's homes at night. So we had really feasted off a lot of people's good stuff. For, during that time. The point of that is this. At some point, he had, to recon, he had to reconcile it. He went and he turned himself in. He realized, I will never be free until I just come to terms with what I've done so that I can move on in freedom. I never learned what happened to him after that. I like to think that after he served his time that he did go on to serve the Lord in ministry. Philemon, the wealthy slave owner, was a sinner who had been saved by the grace of God in the same way. And Onesimus, a runaway slave, was also a sinner who was saved by the grace of God. And likely both Philemon and Onesimus had come to faith under the ministry of the same man by the name of the Apostle Paul. In the eyes of the world, one is still a slave owner, the other is still a runaway slave. And here they are spiritually before God in Christ, both as equals according to grace. They now are brothers in Christ, and yet they're both sinners on equal footing who deserve the wrath and the condemnation of God before they're saved. But due to the free grace of God, they both receive forgiveness and pardon from their sin. As a Roman citizen, Philemon had the legal right to make sure that Onesimus gave back to him, came back, even was dealt with. As a Roman citizen, Paul, too, would have been obliged to make sure that the law was followed. So here Paul continues, verse 12, he says, Well, I sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on my behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. 
But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but by your own free will. You see, what you learn here is that during this time, Paul had really learned to love Onesimus, the slave. He'd come to be a blessing to him, an asset to him in his ministry. But he knew that ultimately, if Onesimus is ever really going to be of real service in the Lord like he'd like him to be, that he would have to be as one who is free to serve. One outside of the debt of Philemon hanging over his head. And so Paul here is committed to sending Onesimus back to Philemon, but it was his decision. Paul would even exercise and could have exercised his apostolic authority demanding that Philemon do this. But again, Paul chooses for the sake of love. I want this to be an act of love, not of something I make you do, but something you do because you know what God has done for you. For perhaps he was for this reason, he had separated from you for a while so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Maybe we can see here why this is included in the Bible, this story. Because it does tell us how grace really does change everything. And I think of Paul's words here, perhaps it was for this reason that he was separated from you for a little while so that you could have him back forever. Isn't that a great way of looking at it? And not only to receive him as a slave, but as a brother. One who can bring blessings to the Lord and to Philemon and to Paul, but most importantly to Jesus Christ himself. Here it is, the truth of grace changing everything. And though Philemon is still a slave owner, Onesimus is still a runaway slave. Philemon has the right of a slave owner to demand the return of a slave. And Paul's plea is this in verse 17, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Paul says, I want you to receive him as if you were receiving myself. And I want you to accept him as you would accept me. And then in verse 18, he takes it even further. He says, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I love this. He's saying, listen, if there's any debt that needs to be paid, I want you to put it to my account. I'll take care of it. Whatever he owes, I'll, I'll do it. I'll pay the debt. His debt is now my debt. And this proves the length of Paul's love, both for Onesimus as well as Philemon. And what you call this here is imputation. It's the act of taking one's debt and imputing it or transferring it to the account of someone else. And then Paul says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owed me your own self as well. And I like how Paul kind of puts in a little dig here. It's like, yeah, you know what? I really would like you to do this, not to mention how much you owe me, by the way. I mentioned that uh, your debt's pretty big with me, but no, not to mention that. We're not going to talk about it. Yes, brother, verse 20, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Now, there is no mistake about what the apostle's asking Philemon to do. Not only is he asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus of the wrong that was done to him, but as well to 
offer him the chance to pay the debt that is owed to him. He's asking him to be freed from all former obligation so that he can be free to serve the Lord. The Philemon is a wealthy slave owner. He's too has, he's been a sinner in need of forgiveness. And he too had owed a debt he could not pay. And it was Christ who paid the debt he did not owe. And here in Christ, he finds pardon and forgiveness of his wrongs done to him. And now he's being asked to offer it to someone else other than him on behalf of another. And so I want to look at the final words here. Paul would end in verse 22, at the same time also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, preached you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And I love how Paul closes this letter because he closes it here with the expectation that one day he says, we're all going to be together again. And when we do, we're going to be brothers. We're going to be family. We're going to be as one. We're going to have a common bond because this is what the grace of God does. Now, we have no record of really of what happens with Onesimus or even of Philemon's response. I think it's safe to assume that it was joyful, everything that we see here. But here we see the thing is the grace we receive from Christ has much to do with the grace that we give to others. What we've been given, what we've been offered, how it now becomes us to say, I can give this to others who have wronged as well. You see, grace, I believe here this, this book of Philemon is there to give us the illustration of the radical nature of grace when it has lived out in the life of a, poor, of a person who's truly been born again. Grace is what brings us, and that bridges the gap between us and God. Grace will bridge the gap between us and others. And this wonderful little jewel of a letter illustrates something so beautiful, something far greater. It illustrates how Jesus Christ interceded on our behalf how he imputed the debt that we owed God on himself at Calvary. Because we were all slaves, every one of us. Every one of us slaves to sin and death. And like Onesimus, we tried to run away from our slavery. We thought we could get away. We, maybe we turned to drugs or we turned to this or we turned to that. All efforts to run away from the fact that you're a sinner who deserves the wrath of God. And you do everything. But ultimately, you come to face with the truth as to who you are and the condition of your life. And you realize that there is someone that is there to save you from all of it. And there we have Jesus who intercedes before us on our behalf how he offers up his blood that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us and that he would redeem us, that he would pay the ransom for us because God in his holiness could never ignore the debt that he owed. So he sent his son Jesus to pay it for us on our behalf. And Jesus said to the law at that time, it's like whatever they owe, it's mine, put it on my account. Whatever they might owe, it's mine, it's my debt to pay. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That's all of us. 
Every one of us. In essence, it's like Jesus is saying to the Father, Father, I want you to receive them like you receive me. I want you to just take those ones and I want you to look at them and love them in the same way that you've loved me. Freely, Lord, and through your righteousness. I love this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that great? He makes us righteous. He makes us righteous. Jesus imputed our debt to himself and he imputed his righteousness to us. The exchange the robe, we gave him our filthy garments and he gave us his robe of righteousness and he placed it upon us and there he saw the God the Father would see us and the righteousness of Jesus Christ the Son. And in Christ we find ourselves not only forgiven of sin of our past, but he makes us righteous. In the world, when we leave here, we still have bosses and they're still employees, will remain employees. But this bond that we have in Jesus puts believers together in such a unique bond that nothing can break it. None of us are more deserving. None of us get more than someone else. None of us are more saved than anyone else. We're simply saved by the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. He saves us. Think of in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul would exhort Christian slaves, listen, you serve your masters. And if they happen to be believers, you serve them all the more and with greater honor. But he's saying, no matter what, remember who you are. You bought and you've been paid for. You are the redeemed. Grace changes our relationships with others because Christ has set us free from the sin and death and he's forgiven us. He would call us as his children who are the redeemed to be merciful to others just as he's been merciful with us to be gracious and forgiving with others just as he has been gracious and forgiving with us, to be loving and patient with others as God has been loving and patient with us, to love others unconditionally because God has loved us unconditionally. Do you see how it works? When he becomes our life and he becomes, we now do things as the Father. We forgive, we love, we move on. I think that's why Jesus emphasizes in the, his prayer, Matthew 6, he says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Oh, people, if there's unforgiveness, if there's things in your life that you're holding on to, you gotta give it up. It's killing you. It'll hurt you and do more damage to you than you could possibly know. If you're holding on to bitterness and you're holding on to those things, listen, the Lord would say, let it go. Be set free from the one who sets you free. Be liberated. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this little gem of a book which tells us, Lord, the wonderful story of two men who both experienced the grace of God in their lives and the difference that it made. But this morning, Lord, we recognize ourselves. We recognize, Lord, 
where we were and what you've done for us. And I pray, Father, this morning that we would rejoice as your children. God, that you would speak to us about just the joy of what it means to belong to you. And that this morning, God, that we would be set free. Lord, there's maybe some people here, they're holding on to things that are holding them in slavery. Maybe they're in bondage, Lord, to their bitterness or their unforgiveness. And perhaps, Lord, they even feel justified. But this morning, Lord, I pray by the grace of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would set captives free. Lord, that you would liberate us from everything, God, that fights against your purpose and your good because you are holy and righteous. And now, Lord, as your children, you call us, Lord, to love and the way that you have loved us. And I pray, Father, there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, has never given their life to you, Lord, that you would today communicate with their heart, Lord, that they too, it doesn't matter what their past is, it doesn't matter where they've been, God, that you are gracious and merciful, and that, Lord, you are here today to forgive us all of our sin and to make us clean and righteous in the sight of God. I pray, Father, you stir our hearts this morning as we wait upon you and worship and Lord, just tell you that we love you and we're grateful that we're your children. In the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to our Philemon study. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.